Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of Matthew chapter 1 as we read verses 18 through 23. Hear now the word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the prophet had, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truth on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you to help us today. We ask you, together with your Son, to send the Spirit, to illuminate the text, to open our eyes to glorious truths, the truths of your Son, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the Christmas season is upon us in full force. Uh, I haven't heard about any stampedes at malls. I don't think there's anything to buy at the malls. I don't think people go to malls, actually, anymore. Uh, but I, I sense that things are uh, afoot. Everything's happening. And uh, generally, as our society gets more secular, uh, the season actually is completely embraced, as long as it's about jolly fat men in red suits and getting and giving presents. Uh, But regardless of what the culture values, one of the things that's really important for us is that we think about Jesus, especially about his birth at a time like this. Uh, Besides the death and resurrection of Christ, I'm not sure there is any greater mystery in the Christian faith than the mystery of Christ's incarnation, his being born of a woman. Is there anything weightier, more difficult, uh, more uh, deep that we could possibly reflect upon with regard to Jesus than the incarnation? There are all sorts of angles and approaches that we could take when we think about the incarnation today. And so I simply want us to to, to do one. I want us to ask this question very briefly, uh, the question, why did Jesus come? Why did Christ come? What was his purpose? And so both this week and next week, I want to explore two important answers to that question. Both of them actually come from the text. But the first one this week comes from the words of the angel. And, and this angel tells Joseph that Christ came into the world to reveal God. He came into the world to reveal God. So let me explain this under two points. The first is God invisible, and then the second point is God visible. Uh, pretty simple outline, I hope. Uh, God invisible, God visible. So the first point this morning is God invisible. You know, of of all the things that we teach our children, one of the first things and probably the most challenging for us as parents is teaching children about the spiritual nature of God, right? We teach our children that God is a spirit and that's why they can't see him. 
That's the question kids always want to ask. Why can't I see God? Why can't I see God? Uh, He doesn't have a body. He's a spirit. He doesn't occupy physical space and time. We can't use our eyes or instruments to detect him. The Gospel of John affirms this in chapter 1. It says, no one has ever seen God. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 1.6, no one has ever seen or can see God. And then in another place, God says that, or Paul says that God is the king of ages, immortal, invisible, not seeable. Um, we used to use a children's catechism in our house uh, where you ask the children the question, can you see God? And if you've ever used the children's catechism, maybe you know the answer. But the answer, at least in this particular children's catechism, is no, I cannot see God, but he always sees me. So this is the... Consistent teaching of the Bible. God is not a physical being. He is altogether spiritual. So the invisibility of God's hard for us to appreciate, right? Part of the reason is that we live in a physical world. We are surrounded on every side by physical objects and physical people. Our entire life is occupied with physical reality, making sure that we eat, making sure that we drink, talking to actual people. Um, We have no experience that we can think of with people who are non-physical. We don't know any non-physical people, at least not in our typical everyday life. Um, If you asked me when I was a young man, whether it's a good thing that God is invisible, especially as a new Christian, if you said, Adam, is it good that God is invisible? I think I would have been tempted to say no. Um, I didn't have very good theology, right? Brand new Christian. How could it be better? How could God be better than what he is? And I would have said, no, he could be better. He could be physical, would have been my answer. And, and I wonder if maybe secretly some of us might think the same thing, that it would be better if God was physical. It would be better if we could see him. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe there are kids in this room that just think to themselves, yeah, I wish I could see God. I wish I could see God. I'd feel better if I could see him, if he was somewhere uh, physically, spatially, that I could, could touch him that I could see him. Let me mention some reasons why God's invisibility is a good thing. Some consequences of God's invisibility, some reasons why it is actually a blessing to us that God is invisible and not physical and not visible. Why is that better? Um, The first reason is this. The fact that God is invisible means that we don't localize our sense of his presence. We don't localize our sense of his presence, right? He, he is always with us because he is invisible. He is always with us in a way that we couldn't affirm if he was visible. If he was physical, if he was in a specific place, then we would always be looking for him and wondering where he, he is, right? We would, we would be sort of like those crowds, you know, the crowds wandering the countryside. They just seem to be wandering around, just looking for Jesus and and when they get their sight of him, right, they just, they, they chase him. You know, it's like Beatlemania, but on the, the hills of, of Judea. And, and always be, we would always be wondering, where is he and why isn't he here now? But be, because God is invisible, we actually know the answer right now. The same answer that Paul gave in his speech in Acts 17. What did he say there? He is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Because he is a spirit, because he is invisible, each and every one of us can hear that and know that it's true. He is not actually far from each one of us. 
Whether we live in India or whether we live in Australia or whether we live right here in the United States, all of us can hear that statement and know that it's true. He is not actually far from each one of us. It's because he's not a physical being. Why can Paul say this? He could say this because God is a spirit. He couldn't say that if God wasn't a spirit. So I want you to see the invisibility of God as a blessing. That's the first reason. Second reason is this. Because he is invisible, he can dwell in us and he can minister to us from within. Um, If God wasn't invisible, think of it this way. If God wasn't invisible, then to have his spirit within us wouldn't mean very much. To have his spirit within us would be kind of like having his, a force that God sends out, uh, that God sort of uh, sends to us or sends into us, but it wouldn't be God himself. The spirit would not be God himself. The fact that God is invisible means that, he is, that it's not an empty promise when Jesus tells us that the spirit really is the spirit of God. Um, if, you're a, if you're a Christian... Paul tells us in one of his epistles that you have the Holy Spirit within you. Amen. And, and that means that you have God dwelling within your heart, right? That would not be true if God was a physical being, if God was not invisible. So again, see the invisibility of God for what it is. It is a blessing. It's a blessing that he's invisible because he can dwell within us. Um, third, his invisibility means that we always have access to him. We always have access to him. Let me illustrate what I mean by that. Uh, On Sunday mornings, uh, one of my favorite things to do is go to the door and talk to people about the sermon. Talk to people after the service. And I love to to see visitors. Uh, Sometimes if you're a a member here and someone's walking past and they're a visitor, I've never seen them before, I'll just ditch you and make you feel bad. And I'll run to the visitor to say, hey. I'm glad you came today, you know. <laughs> Why do I have to do that? I have to do that because I'm physically limited, right? One person in one place at one time talking to maybe one, maybe two, maybe three people at best. Um, it's, you can't be everywhere and at every place because why? I'm a physical person in one place, right? Um, and uh, uh, here's where the invisibility of God is so precious because God is not like Pastor Parker. Uh, God is invisible, That means that he can be omnipresent. It means that you can talk to God and it means you can know God's presence at at any time and and, and any place. And you can know God and speak to God at the same time as someone else. You can you can each and every one of you can be speaking to God in your heart right now and he can hear all of you. If he was physical, you would have there would be a funnel, a bottleneck. (laughs) Everyone's got to get to him before they can actually talk to him. So the invisibility of God is a huge, huge blessing. He's not like Pastor Parker. Uh, in in Jesus' ministry, even his earthly ministry, he's, people are pressing upon him all the time. They're, they're crushing him. They're forcing him to, to flee by boat, right? The crowds are so numerous. There are so many people that even Jesus, this perfect man, still cannot contain the crowds. And he can't fulfill the crowds with his person because he's physically localized and he's, he's visible. And, and then think, this ex- helps explain why Jesus then says in the book of John, he says, it's better for you that I go. It's better for you to go because now I can minister to you. Jesus is saying it's better that I'm invisible to you than if I was physically here. He says, you'll be ministered to in a better way. 
He says, my ascended invisible ministry is better than my embodied ministry here on the earth. So I want you to see, Christian, that the invisibility of God, uh, the, way that, the way that Jesus does, Jesus sees the invisibility of God as a blessing. He sees it as a good thing. Have you lost that? Have you, have you found yourself at times thinking, I really wish he was physical. I wish he was here right now. And you have to be reminded almost, it is really, truly a blessing that I can't see him and go to him physically. Now, of course, that doesn't stop people in the Bible from yearning to see God. It's a a human yearning to wish that you could see God. And maybe you even now say, I heard all that good stuff you said. I still want to see God. Uh, There are a lot of people in the Bible who could relate to this this impulse, right? You have these moments like when Moses sees God's glory pass by or when God sees this appearance in the temple in Isaiah 6. Um, Both of those appearances, we call them theophanies. They're, They're appearances of God for the benefit of the person he appears to. But even what they're seeing, it's not the essence of God. They're not seeing the nature of God. Because, of course, we've talked about this. You can't see God's essence. You can't see his nature because his nature is invisible. That's what he's like. He just can't be seen. And so when someone says God is a person and he is invisible, we're sort of left in this sense feeling dumbfounded. He's a person and he's invisible. We don't know any invisible persons. There's no, there are no other persons in our lives that are invisible. And it leaves us frustrated because we always want to have analogies. We always want to have something we can compare God to. And we'll talk about this in a little bit, but almost always those analogies fall apart. Almost always they fall short. And almost always they end up leading us into some kind of error. So it's hard to understand, but scripture does teach that God is invisible. But the second point I want us to dwell upon this morning is this, and this is where the contrast starts to happen. This is where the miracle of the incarnation becomes so pronounced is the reality that now God is visible. Because because here's what the angel tells Joseph. He says, in the birth of this child, the invisible God becomes, in a sense, the visible God. He was invisible. Now we can see this person who is God. Just look at the text. Look what it says. The angel is talking to Joseph. He says, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So think of what the angel is saying. He's, he is not telling Mary that Jesus will be given the proper name Emmanuel. You won't find him called Emmanuel anywhere. You never find a text where someone says, hey, we need to go see Emmanuel. Uh, You never hear Mary call him Emmanuel. You never hear Joseph call him Emmanuel. He's called Emmanuel in Isaiah 7 and 8. He isn't called Emmanuel as a proper name anywhere in the Bible. The angel is instead communicating something with this. He's saying that those who follow him will know him as God with us. If I have Jesus with me, I have God with me. I have Emmanuel. So it's a, it's a descriptive term of accomplishment. It's not a proper name. Think about this, though. This is earth-shaking because that means that this child who Mary is at this moment carrying in her womb is of human origin. And yet the child is also of divine origin. Right? So God, is, God has done this thing, not a man. God has done this. 
Um, the child is human. He is, he is uh, in a long line of human beings with ancestors such as King David and Abraham. He shared genetic material from the men and women who came before because he really was and is one of us. Going all the way back to Adam. He has genetic material from Adam flowing through his veins. All right, this child from Mary's egg has been fertilized by the Holy Spirit. Just try to wrap your head around that. It's how? Well, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. So the child, though, is, is not, a, not just a special man. He's not just a, a prophet. He's not just a, a great hero like, or a judge like Samson or, or Samuel, right? He is God himself come to live with us, come to live among us, to live among us physically, visibly. And so here's what I guess I'm trying to lead us toward is this reality, which is you cannot overstate or oversell the glory of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Because when the angel tells Joseph what he says about Jesus, he says something glorious and he doesn't even tell him half of it. If you look at the rest of the New Testament, the dominant theme when the writers speak of Jesus isn't just that he's glorious, but that he's the very revelation of God himself. He is the unveiling. I, I like the illustration when we talk about unveiling. Um, you know, back in the day, Steve Jobs used to do these presentations where he'd show off the new iPhone or he'd show off a new Mac laptop or something. And he would have the black. Well, actually, there was the one time where he pulled the MacBook out of a manila envelope and blew everyone's minds. Right. And what is he doing in that moment? He's unveiling. He's showing something that wasn't seen before. Right? And, and Jesus is an unveiling of something else. Jesus is like the envelope being opened up and showing us God. He's a revelation of God. He's an unveiling of God. He's the display of the God of the universe. He's, he's the appearance of the very God who did not and dared not and could not appear before because as we saw, he is the invisible God. So earlier, you know, we read from John 1.18, no one has seen God. But then look at the second half of that verse. It says, no one has seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That he there is Jesus. No one has seen God. Jesus has made him known. So John doesn't just say that the son has given us a glimpse of God. He doesn't just say that the son has, he says the son has made him known. He was not known. Jesus made him known. The first chapter of Hebrews is so powerful in what it says. It says Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact, exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. First, the author says Jesus himself is the radiance of the glory of God. In other words, the glory of God finds its mirror in and is reflected in the person of the Son. He is the display of the glory of God. Do you, know the, do you want to know the glory of God? Then you have to know Jesus. The author says something more. He, he calls Jesus the exact imprint of God's nature. Think of that wording. It's exact imprint, not something like God. He says exact imprint. The, 
The word imprint here is the same in the Greek word for when someone wants to leave behind a, an impression in a wax seal. Uh, Uh, The imprint is the exact image of what was pressed into it. And just as if to say, not an imperfect image, he actually uses the word exact, perfect, precise. And the author of Hebrews says, that's what Jesus is to God. He is God's image. He doesn't just say that he's an imprint. He says that he is the exact imprint, a flawless imprint, a a perfect imprint. There is no discrepancy between who Jesus is and who God, the God he is the image of. In other words, the son is the perfect revelation of God. He is the one that you look to if you want to know what God is like. Do you get the picture yet? Because the Son is an exact imprint of God, He is God. That's why John can begin his gospel by saying that the Son was with God and was God. Eternally, He was God. He isn't just a human being who is a great deal like God. If you you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, one day you will meet Him in glory. And when you meet Jesus in glory you will see a physical person. My, my Christology professor, uh, Derek Thomas, if you don't know, Christology is the study of Christ. <laughs> and my Christology professor, Derek Thomas, he used to say that, that when people saw Jesus, they were looking at someone, someone with the genetic material of Mary. Um, people would have looked at him and said, he has his mother's eyes. He looks like Mary. Um, When you see him one day, you will see a man with a certain height, a certain weight, a certain look, a certain hair color. Perhaps he'll have Mary's smile, maybe a mischievous grin, right? A certain certain quality of appearance. And we, we don't know what that is yet. Scripture doesn't tell us what he looks like. All we can say for sure is that he is a man and he will be a man when we see him. But one day you will finally see Jesus, the person that you will set your eyes on. When you look at him, you will be looking at God. You will be looking at God. You won't be looking at the nature of God. You'll be looking at a person who is God. A person with two natures. You don't know anyone else in the universe who has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. Jesus is the only one. And when you look at him, you will be looking at a man who is fully God. And fully man. We will never see the Father. We will never see the Holy Spirit because they don't have bodies. But we will see Jesus physically with our eyes. Jesus says in another place, if you see me, you've seen the Father. How can that make sense? Isn't the Son different from the Father? Well, yes and no. He's a different person from the Father, but he has the same exact divine nature as the Father. Jesus explains more what this means to see the father when you see him in the very next verse in John 14, 10, he says, I am in the father and the father is in me. So the fact that the father, son and spirit share the same divine nature is why Jesus can say to see me is to see the father. He's not saying he's the same person as the Father. He's saying, I have the same divine nature as the Father. Now, if your head has started to spin, then it means you've been listening. 
right? <laughs> it, it means you've been paying attention. Uh, it just means we have great conversations to have at the door. Now, this isn't always easy to grasp. You know, my children will often say to me, I know Jesus is God, but God is invisible. So how can Jesus be God, but Jesus is not invisible? And as parents, we have to sort of resist the temptation to scoff at the question, especially if we don't have a ready answer. Um, how is this man God, but also visible? How, how is, in this case at least, this baby who is soon to be, in the narrative, lying in the major, very God of very God, as the Nicene Creed tells us. But we can see him. We can set our eyes on him. What on earth is going on here? Jesus is the revelation of God, but since God is not physical, he isn't showing us what God looks like. We're not seeing the divine nature because the divine nature can't be seen. What we are seeing in that manger is a person with a divine nature. And if you were to physically sit in the presence of Jesus, you would be looking at an altogether unique person with two natures. Nobody has ever seen a person with two natures before until Jesus came into the world. Don't look for a parallel. Don't look for an analogy. It it won't work. He has a divine nature, which you could not and cannot see. And he has a human nature, which you can see and touch and experience. But in Christ, there's something else unique. His divine and human natures are united in a single person, the person of Jesus. Now, that's not easy to explain to a child. That is the right answer, but it's not an easy answer. When we see the sun, we are looking at God, and yet we aren't looking at the divine nature. And yet he has a divine nature that he's united to. Try wrapping your mind around that. Now, um, this is part of the reason why so many in church history, certainly historically Presbyterians, have been troubled by this human impulse, this human tendency to want to make images and pictures of God, and especially images of Jesus. It's just natural to us. We want to do this. For, for some, actually, images of Jesus is something we're accustomed to. It's something that's hard to avoid. I don't see a lot of them around here, but when I was in Mississippi, basically every yard had images of, of Jesus and uh, the nativity uh, during the holiday season. Um, why might that be a, a problem? The second commandment says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. What does that mean? Well, actually, we read it a couple of weeks ago, what our confession says, and our catechism says this, the second commandment forbids the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. So our God is a, he's a jealous God. He's jealous for his glory. He's jealous especially not to be misrepresented or for us to imagine things about him that don't fit with reality. So I, I, think, I think for the most part, we understand that the second commandment forbids us from making any images of, of, of anything, including God and worshiping it. And yet people also, I think, very innocently think it's fine to make an, an image of Jesus as long as we only depict his, his human nature, right? Uh, but Jesus is never only a man. He is always a person with a divine nature. He is always a person who is God forever now. So any image we make, if we're intending to make an image of Jesus, is intended to be an image of God. Um, 
which the second commandment forbids. And it's not because seeing Jesus is wrong. It's not because anyone who laid eyes on Jesus was, was sinning. It's because inventing ideas about Jesus or inventing ideas about his appearance, they diminish his glory. Because somehow in our heads, we will get something wrong. We will tell ourselves an untruth about him. We'll, we, will, we, we will get him wrong. If we haven't seen him, then anything we draw Any statue we make is going to be from our imagination entirely and not the truth. So there's there's no talking about Jesus as though we can compartmentalize, as though his person that we're seeing doesn't have a divine nature, as though we're not seeing a person who is God when we see him. We will always be seeing a person who is God. Far better for us to live the way Jesus encouraged Thomas. What did he say to Thomas? He said, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Jesus' intention is for us to, to look to him in a way that isn't visible. Jesus basically says, hey, Thomas, everybody after you is not going to see me. And that's the way to live. So he does intend for us to see him one day, but not yet. Until then, we are those who have not seen and yet believed. And Jesus says that is blessed. It is better not to see Jesus. We have to believe that. He says so. So what are we seeing at the incarnation? What does Hebrews mean when it says that he is the exact imprint of God's nature? Well, it's difficult to dig as deep as we need to, but his purpose there in Hebrews is to lift Jesus up, right? The whole book of Hebrews is about exalting Jesus and showing us his glory, not necessarily exploring all the ins and outs of the phrasing that he uses. But in part, I think the author of Hebrews is saying that what our creeds have confessed for over a millennia, namely, Jesus Christ is God. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, as Paul says in Colossians 2.9. Christ is fully God and fully man. But what does he show us about God if we can't see the divine nature? What is he showing us then? I think a partial answer is that he reveals God's character to us in all its fullness, right? Our God is pure. He is spirit. He's holy. He's untainted by sin. He's loving and he's good. He's kind and he's glorious. Jesus shows us all of that. If you look at Christ, you see what it looks like to keep each and every one of the commandments. And not just to practice it, not just to see what it looks like to act out keeping the commands, but Jesus demonstrates for us from the heart what it means to keep God's law. So to see Jesus is to see how to have no other gods before you. To see Jesus is to see how you honor your father and mother. To see Jesus is to see how we keep the Sabbath. To see Jesus is to see how we live a life where we're not coveting. If you want to know what a non-covetous life looks like, look at the life of Jesus. He's the revelation of what it looks like within the very heart of God. When you, when you look at Jesus, you don't just see an, an obedient son. You see the holiness of God in its totality lived out for us to see and to savor. When we look at Jesus, we see that he shows us God's perfect and holy and good and kind and glorious fullness of character. This is what God is like. Jesus Christ is the perfect revelation of the heart of God. He is God 
entering into time. He is the author writing himself into the book. And he keeps showing us that he keeps his promises, right? That, that promise that he made to Abraham would be made into a numberless people. He kept that promise. The promise of a Messiah who would bear our sins and carry our sorrows. Those promises are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus reveals to us the heart of God and the perfection of promises kept. All of this might make your head spin. Maybe it feels academic to you. I hope it feels worshipful. There was one Reformed theologian several years ago who said, we do better to adore the mysteries of deity than to investigate them. Uh, Probably right. But oftentimes it's hard to adore what we haven't investigated in the least, what we haven't thought about. You know, the truth is God doesn't give us these things in his word so we can argue over details, so we can haggle over complexities. He gives them to us so that we can know and adore him. That's the purpose of all of this. All of this is supposed to be about doxology. It's supposed to be about worship, right? Oh, come, let us adore him is what we say. Come, let us adore him, not analyze him. And so the analysis must lead to adoring or else the analysis is wasted. Here's what we need to know this morning. There is an infinite difference between knowing things about Christ, right? Having this idea of Jesus that perhaps maybe even feeds sentimental memories during this season, right? There's a difference between that and actually taking a hold of Jesus and and knowing his truth and abiding in his presence. That's the call God gives to us in scripture. We're supposed to abide in him. There's nothing you need more than to know the presence of Jesus Christ, you could ignore everything else I said. Please don't miss that. There is nothing you need more than to know the presence of Jesus Christ. How does the book of Matthew end, right? It, it opens with these promises here, and then it ends with Jesus looking his people full in the face, and he's saying to them these wonderful words. He says, I am with you always. And then they immediately stop being able to see him. This is a man in very nature God looking at his people and saying, I know what you think you need. You think you need food. You think you need clothes, right? Maybe he looks at us and says, during the season, you think you need stuff. You need gadgets. You need presents. You need trees. You need all that stuff. And he says, I'll take care of that in my own time and my own way. But there's one thing you need above all else. And there's one thing that can give you more security than anything else in the world. And that is this. He says, you need my presence. Amen. You need me to be with you, and that's why I came, so that you could know the Father's loving heart, so that you could know his holy character, so that you could be united to God forever and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that now you have peace. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord, forbid that we should love anything more than you, Revealed to us in your son. Forbid us to love even our own families more than you. You tell us whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Oh God. Help us to love you more than even family celebrations and gatherings. Oh God, as wonderful as they are, bring Christ to the front. And set him before our hearts and souls. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. 
Amen.